Housebroken Clothing and ClassicSciFi.com have joined forces to present the ultimate in classic science fiction-inspired apparel. All shirts are hand-printed here in the USA. Everyone loves the luxurious feel of these shirts. The prints are lightweight with soft inks, making them the perfect combination of style and comfort. Each shirt is unique and meticulously cared for during production. They are then inspected, approved, and signed by the artist himself. All this, plus free shipping. They've got Frankenstein shirts, Night of the Living Dead shirts, UFO shirts, all sorts of shirts. They're great shirts. Check out the shirts today at ClassicSciFi.com. Welcome to Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hi. And Jenna Ipkar. Hello. Today's episode, uh, we did this a little while back. It's uh, movies we've seen lately, the best ones we've seen lately. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of a recap because sometimes you got to recalibrate your brain, remember what you've seen, tell people to see stuff, discuss it, get out of your system so you can go on with your life, right? So uh, what have you seen, Jenna? Before I came over here, in continuation with my Steven Seagal marathon, I watched Under Siege. It was good. I mean, like, it was also, I think it was his most believable movie, <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, yeah. It made more sense, whereas the other ones are like, I'm a cop, but I also know, like, jujitsu, and I'm also, like, super cool, and I also can kill 500 people. You're like, man, you're not a cop. Like, what the hell? But with this, at least he's, like, an ex-Navy SEAL, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. buy that, you know? But uh, it was all right. It was pretty good. It's enjoyable. It's like the diehard template, right? That was, like, a thing in the late 80s, early 90s. It was like a thing. You had just a whole subgenre of movies like Die Hard, but in different places. So you had Die Hard on a boat, or like Speed was kind of Die Hard on a bus. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this sort of like crawling around Die Hardy um, executive decision. Yeah. It was Die Hard on a plane. That's the best of the whole Die Hard lot, including Die Hard. It's funny because the the fake diehards, essentially, I kind of like them better than the actual diehard. I like diehard on a bus and diehard on a boat and diehard on a plane better than the actual diehard sequels. See, now I have to watch diehard so I know what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) Well, just imagine Under Siege in a building. You're better off reading the screenplay (laughs) to diehard because diehard is like one of the best screenplays ever written and it's wasted on the movie diehard. So just like read it. There's a book. Maybe the book version's better. But like everything they do to make it a movie makes it worse. Was it originally a book, Die Hard? Yeah. And I think it's one of those ones that the original concept when they were going to make it a movie was to do it as a sequel to Commando. There Ah. were like a handful where they wanted to do another Commando and they just morphed into different movies. And I think Die Hard was one of them. The one thing I like about the Die Hards is that the further they go the more the titles sound like Leonard Skinner songs. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. Die Hard with a Vengeance is just a great title. And Die Harder, that's a great title, but they didn't even end up using that. Did they not? I mean, it's just called Die Hard 2. Electric Boogaloo. Oh, is that like the tagline Die Harder? Because in my head, it's always just been Die Harder. I always remembered it as Die Hard 2 colon Die Harder, when really it should have just been Die Harder. But then when I see it subsequently, it's always just Die Hard 2. It's kind of like the Rambo thing, except it's all one title that just got progressively worse. It's a shame. I'm still bitter that they didn't call Fast and the Furious 6 Furious 6, because that was such a fucking gimme. And the third one should have been 3 Fast, 3 Furious. (laughs) And the seventh one should just be like just a number seven, and then just a picture of cars. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, John, what have you seen lately that you dug? Well, on your uh, advice, I saw Unfaithful the other day. Great movie. Yeah, the... It's that Richard Gere one, for anybody who doesn't remember it. It's like Richard Gere and Diane Lane. It's very eyes wide shutty, sort of like a quiet dissolution of a marriage, infidelity kind of movie. It's that like late 90s, early 2000 kind of erotic thriller, which was like big for a while. I really liked it. I know it's, um, I was reading up on it later and it seems like not many people were feeling it, but I really liked it. I thought it was, first of all, gorgeous. Well, it's Adrian Lynn who can't make a not gorgeous movie. Yeah. I mean, Flashdance doesn't get enough credit. That's a gorgeous movie. His, his Lolita is beautiful. He's just a gorgeous director. Yeah, and I was expecting that because of who it was, but I was not expecting it to be as um, mature as it was because it's actually pretty, like, it's smart about what it's doing. You know, it, a lot of those 
those '90s erotic thrillers always collapse under their own weight because they're really they don't really work the way people think. They get convoluted too. Yeah, it's like just a bunch of suspense beats shoved into it. It doesn't get to like the heart of the story. Yeah, but Unfaithful really seemed to capture um, ambivalence to me. Mm. You know, like there was a lot of even all the love scenes. There was a sort of core of oh fuck, what are we doing at the heart of them that really seemed to work. Yeah. And like the confrontation scene that the husband and the lover have is just everything people say isn't what you expect to see in a movie, but like makes sense emotionally. Right. And it has that great, like almost smoky light quality to it. Yeah. He just pumps smoke into all those rooms, which is something that um, Spielberg was a big fan of for a while there. I don't know if he still does, but that's sort of like diffused, really tangible light. I think he does it digitally now, it seems. Just from the look of like... Can you do that digitally? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I almost remember that in like Catch Me If You Can and some of the later ones that he was doing. It just had like a fake look to it, whereas he's done it before and it's looked very real. I feel like that looked realer in the 90s and maybe anything outside of the 90s yeah. looks fake. Like they, It's almost like they nailed it in the 90s and then couldn't nail it again for whatever reason if they changed maybe with new film cameras, stocks, yeah. cameras. They exactly. nailed it in the 40s too, though. They exactly, nail it every yeah. now and again. And then the 50s, you never saw it. And then it started to come back in the late 60s. Into mm-hmm. the 70s, you'd see it a bit. And then you didn't see it again until the 90s. So maybe we're due. Maybe in a couple of years, you'll start to see it again. It'd be nice. Anything where people are moving away from um, creating the image afterwards and back to creating the image when you're capturing it in the moment, I'm all a fan of. That's oh, my favorite totally. thing. Totally. So uh, one that I saw recently that I had never seen, um, but I always heard of and always heard it was well-revered was uh, It Happened One Night, the Cary Grant film. Oh, I love that movie. And. The thing that really struck me about it, like, you know, it's just a fun, funny movie, but it's just kind of like a proto John Hughes movie. It just has that, like, we're trying to get to a place vibe like Dutch or Planes, Trains and Automobiles. And he even has like a mustache like um, John Candy in Planes, Trains. And it's just, I love that I was seeing this version of something that would then become this, uh, this very American idea later on this uh sort of two people shacked up road movie thing i liked it a lot i thought it was a lot of fun the only thing that like really bugged me about it is something that bugs me usually about a lot of movies during that time period which is just a third act just goes on and on and on like it should have been like an 85 minute movie i think it's like uh close to like 110 and it just doesn't need to be like uh postman always rings twice i had that problem with too where it just it's this court drama suddenly in the third act and it just goes on and on and on. And this one, it just, it couldn't end and it should have just ended very simply because it was a very simple story. But I liked it a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. That's interesting. I think endings in that era, on the whole, I prefer to endings later because they, they weren't afraid, I think, to just end at the ending. Like if Casablanca was made 10 years later, it wouldn't have ended on that shot. It would have ended 20 minutes later. They were smarter about beginning at the beginning big problem i'm seeing now in movies just to give two examples that movie monsters which i watched again recently after seeing godzilla uh and like crazy that one with anton yelchin is both of those movies and like a ton of other movies i'm seeing john carter did this too is they begin a half hour to an hour before the story starts right and there's just this like dicking around period well that's a great thing about like king kong which we we both adore, is the way that that movie starts, it's just like, all right, here's the deal. We're doing this. Here's what needs to happen to get us on the boat. Here we go. Like, it's just, it's so bare bones with the way that it starts. And it's almost like making fun of itself and how bare bones it is and almost kind of self-referential with them talking about what a movie needs, essentially. That aspect really came out in the theater we saw it in. Yeah. That sort of like quirky, like self reflective vibe just for some reason that played so well yeah it's and i so never winking i never picked up on it before watching it at home it was only in a theater i just think that movie is brilliant structurally the way it happens on skull island and then happens again in new york and they have all these lines in it it's like peppered with these lines where they're talking about how it feels like a nightmare and you watch it and you realize that it's like beat for beat occurring twice and it's it's all woven into the fabric of the movie so well that like you don't really 
you're never conscious of that fact, but you get that subliminal back of your head sort of feeling that like immediate deja vu almost. It's so well written, that movie. I love that one. Yeah, that's a keeper. Jenny, you seen anything new lately? Any new movies? New movies. I uh, had a really uh, Jodorowsky weekend, actually. I went to go see The Dance of Reality, which is his new movie. That's, it's been like, you know, 20 somewhat years since he's had any movies. And uh, he just came out with that. And I loved it. Fantastic. Really interesting. Really good. And then also I saw Jodorowsky's Dune, the documentary about the Dune that he was working on and never got made. And that was even better. Like, I left that documentary just like happy to be alive you know it's like one of those movies that you leave going like oh man that would have been so wonderful i'm so angry that doesn't exist also like i'm gonna go make it i'm gonna do it you know like you're just so inspired by it is it sad at all it it really isn't actually because jodorowsky's just so he's so engaging and he's Uh so wonderful i mean he he has this great smile and he sits there and he you know, talks with his hands and he's like just pure emotion. He's just raw emotion, that guy. So he's not he's not pissed off about it or what's his this, vibe about it? He His whole vibe of even making this movie was, I'm going to recruit spiritual warriors to make this film with me. And he kept sitting there and he'd be like, all right, I need to make a storyboard. What am I going to do? All right, I like this comic book artist. Where can I get him? I don't know how to get him. It's the 70s and there's no internet. So he goes to his publicist and the day that he goes to his publicist just so happens that this this comic book artist this is Mobius. famous Mobius, famous French comic book artist just happens to yeah. be there and he goes, "Oh my god, you're the you're going to do it for me." And Mobius goes, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> and the whole movie as he's recruiting people and recruiting people, it's like really similar stories of like, "Who else like this movie's getting bigger and bigger. Like, who else do I want? I want Mick Jagger." Mick Jagger in his heyday is going to be in my film. And how do we get Mick Jagger? I don't know. He goes to a party, sees Mick Jagger across the room. Mick Jagger just walks across the room and goes, he goes, I want you in my movie. Mick Jagger goes, yes. You know, like <laughs> it's such a great, it's just so inspiring and it's so fantastic. And there, and he has this really great way of wrapping it up that doesn't make it depressing because it right. never got made. But Did they go into the fact that it became Alien? Yeah, they they mentioned how it went on to inspire so many other movies. Um, they taught Geiger's actually uh, um, in it being interviewed, which he now, of course, died really recently. Yeah, because really uh, having I haven't seen that documentary, but I've been I've researched the making of Alien a ton for just various reasons along the way, and I always come across all the Dune stuff and all the pictures and everything. And it would have been great to see that movie, but to be honest, we got the better movie. I think out of the deal. Being alien. Yeah. Because yeah. without Dune, if Dune was made, there would have been no alien. But without Dune, there would have been no alien. It would have been, it would have looked like Flash Gordon. It would have been really sort of like structurally 70s sci-fi. It wouldn't have had any of that influence. You think because it was just the wrong time for it to be made? or No, it really, the the crew that was assembled to make Alien was assembled for Dune. Right, okay. So Mobius, Ron Cobb, Geiger, all those people got together for Dune. And if Hodorowsky hadn't done the legwork, it wouldn't have happened. And then we would have had no aliens, too. Yeah, which is the yeah. best movie ever made. Yeah, he point. No, they, they directly talk about that. And they, they also go on to talk about all these other movies that have been directly inspired. They even have shot by shot comparisons of the storyboards uh, for Dune versus like Alien or versus um, Star Wars and, and Prometheus uh, used them too. The yep, big, absolutely. Um, that big thing in Prometheus that they go into the like cave thing was um, a design for one of the tanks yep. in um, Dune, right? It, there's yeah, also it, a Japanese a- commercial that uses that. Geiger designed the commercial. It's on YouTube. You should find it. Oh, that but it's great. just it's we'll like post from, the link. It's from like '91. It's like a stereo commercial, and for some reason, it's just that fucking like living tank monster. That he designed for Dune. Perfect. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that documentary. I really loved it. I mean, it's a type of documentary, too, where you... I, I was, like, immediately, like, five stars. This was the greatest documentary. Yeah, yeah. I and gotta check that out. If you... When you're watching it, it's like... There's sort of... I could pick at it and find, like, sort of things I don't like about it as a, as a documentary. But it was just so... The subject matter was so fantastic. The interviews are so laugh-out-loud funny and so engaging. And then again, I also just love him. I, I think he's so fantastic. So I cannot recommend that enough. So his, uh, his movie, his new movie that came out. So what's the deal with that one? That was interesting too. I sort of think of it as his like, um, I'm accord. Uh, it's about his uh, childhood growing up in this, uh, small town and then all of these. And of course, and there's this uh, mixture of throwing in, you know, it's like everything that could be in a Joe Dawaski movie is there. There's like flocks of animals. There's the amputees. You got like people uh, like naked people. Uh, There's actually it gets like 
I feel like he sort of picks up on on the the time that he makes all of his movies. Mm. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, those movies from the '80s feel like '80s movies, even though they're still very much him versus the '70s movies or stuff he did in the '60s. And this one actually almost felt like visually it was somewhere between Wes Anderson and John Waters. It was really and like because and by John Waters I mean Pink Flamingos. Like there's some crazy wild shit that happens in this right. that I never really would have like pictured him doing, but like it, it makes sense. So, I mean, it was definitely, it was always interesting. It almost feels like three separate movies. He kind of, it feels like he kind of went for broke. He was like, you know, this is the last movie I'm ever going to make. I'm going to throw everything I want to throw into there. But it works. I mean, you know, he's always had, um, in my opinion, he's always had sort of issues with flow in general. His movies can be, they can, they start and stop a little bit. But uh, when it came down to it, you enjoy it the entire time. It's like you watch it with a, like a smile on your face. <laughs> mm. I got to brush up on him. Maybe I'll just blow through all his stuff. Holy Mountain is so f- wonderful. Yeah, I I've love seen, Holy Mountain. There's chunks of him I've seen. I think Holy Mountain, yeah. and uh, El Topo I also yeah. is the other one. The first half of that movie is so amazing. The second half is real slow. But it has, it like, it ends well. Santa Sangre I wasn't crazy about. But it's if you like the other two, you're going to like that, you know? Bondo yeah, and yeah. Lise is, a, is very, very surreal. I think I'll just blow through his stuff. Maybe I'll um, do that and then I'll watch the documentary. I, honestly, I bet you could watch the documentary and then and be inspired to watch the rest of his movies. I'll do that then, yeah. That sounds good. So would you rather live in the universe that got Dune instead of Alien? <laughs> well, you know what? Well, I have to say, you, you just reminded me. I, I, will, I will answer that question. You just reminded me, though. One, the one thing about his new movie, Dance of Reality, is that I'm so happy that we live in a time where that movies like that can still be made. Yeah. Overall, I was yeah. so happy. Like, oh, man. Like, for all the flaws this movie has, like, just you have to go see it because it's, it's so itself. It's so him. And I'm so happy. It's not everything else that's out there. But as far as, uh, you know, the, the world with Dune, I mean, it's funny. Uh, you know, I wonder if I, I would, I would love, love to see that movie. I really would have loved to, to have seen it, but there's so many good things came from it that it's tough. It's a real tough call. I don't think the source material is any good. I've never liked Dune. Dune is always hard. I have never really loved Dune either. I I've never read crying. it. Have either of you read it? I haven't read it. Yeah, I read it. I read it when I was like a teenager and it just, it didn't work for me at all. What do you think is the thing about it that like people adore it? Because I, I never read it's it. It's really evocative. Yeah. It really creates a world that's really um, rich. Okay. But the trouble with it is the rich world it created was not one that I was interested in exploring. Right. But there, I mean, there's like genuine, a ton of genuine talent in it. Hmm. It's just not. Apparently, it has its own spiritual movement too, though, right? I mean, that's kind of what they were mentioning in this documentary of like it has such a a strong theme that carries on throughout the entire entirety of Dune, which I can sort of see, but I feel like maybe that's really never that people get lost in the details and they miss the point. Right. Well, that's like with Star Trek, and and it happened with Avatar too, apparently, and it happened with Alien. Right. I mean, look at look at what Alien was, and look at the way people treat the character of it now. Happen That's just with, what happens for some reason with science fiction. Happened with Die Hard. <laughs> happened with Die Hard, yeah. So you saw, um, you said you saw the new Godzilla, right? Yeah, I saw the I new Godzilla. I think you're the only one of us who has. I, yeah, I, have, I was almost going to go see it. Well, I'm a big old Godzilla fan, so I had, to, I had to make my appearance. The director, the one he did before it, Monsters, which actually I mentioned earlier. I didn't even realize it was that guy. Yeah, it was him. Um that one sort of made me nervous about this because of that problem I mentioned with it where like there's a very clear point in Monsters at probably the 40 minute mark where the movie actually begins and it's the part did you see it No I was just so put off it was like that that one and like the Troll Hunter one and Troll like Hunter a couple was terrible other ones. but they're terrible they're kinda, just very different I lumped them all No don't do this, that I don't do that okay. they're completely different Troll Hunter was So 40 minutes prosaic. in Monsters gets good though right What happens is the way they did it was they they wanted to go down and sort of shoot the movie without a clear rubric for the story Uh-huh shooting it which is fine and a really interesting way to shoot especially if you're on a low budget and can do it but when you do that, it means you really need to have a rigid hand in editing. Sure. And there's a moment in the film where the two main characters miss a ferry, and it means they have to travel by foot across the monster zone. And, like, that's the movie. The movie is about that trip. So you kind of got to start with that, because they have 40 minutes of just sucking the fucking life out of you with these nothing scenes 
before it. And it's these actors who are good, but not, you know, it's not like you're stuck for 40 minutes with Catherine Hepburn where anything can happen and you're fine because who you're with. Mm. You're with these fairly normal actors and they have to hold up nothing and they can't do it. So you kind of start to get sick of them. So do you wish it was just like a really great, like maybe half hour thing in like an anthology? No, I think they could have done... I think they could have done a full one? They could have done a full movie right. from there. They just needed to know where to start it. Mm. And they didn't. And this one, it feels like there was a little bit of the same problem where there's a beginning and then it stops and then it starts again. But it was... um. It wasn't as pronounced. Overall, I really liked Godzilla because I think the things it nailed were the important parts. It started out and it was like kind of like a character monster movie like Cloverfields, which I really like. And then it ended and it was kind of like a monster monster movie like Mothra, which I also liked, where your protagonists really are the monsters. So best of both worlds kind of thing or... No, I would say they needed to pick one and okay. run that to the end. And I think that's a lot of the bad reviews of it, I think, are hinging on that. Wishing it was either one or the other. Yeah. Personally, I would have rather seen the Monster Monster movie because um, they had some great actors and stuff, but it really was at its best when it was just following the monsters. Because what it did that was really cool was during the big fights, they were all like really quiet. Mm. And you would have these moments of like, three or four minutes where these giant things are hitting each other, but you, you barely even hear it. And it just becomes this weird, like sort of beautiful, like dance. And I really liked that stuff. So he's, uh, he's bigger in this one, right? There was this whole thing of like, he's the biggest he's ever been I mean, size. Shit. But I, I, I'm just curious if that, if he looked bigger, if no, it didn't matter. If he didn't, cause your frame of reference is so fundamentally altered in those kind of things. Exactly, right. It's like they did the same thing when they made the new Star Trek movie. One of the things they did for seemingly no reason was they decided that the Enterprise was like four times bigger than it was Uh in the original series, which, all right, fine. But you also never see it against anything except another spaceship. Right. So So, that it doesn't mean anything. So in in other words, it was like... One of those ain't it cool news esque like nitpicks that yeah, turns into a news the, story. It was the back of the trading card fact. Yeah, like yeah, Godzilla yeah. was probably bigger in this, but he was still pretty much just as tall as slightly taller than buildings. And that's it's all I don't really have a, I don't have a be, size you know? graph of how big <laughs> the buildings are exactly. Yeah, I just yeah. know he was pretty pretty big. Big guy. He's fat in this one. <laughs> he's, he's just fat. He's a What's big he fat been eating? Godzilla. Monsters and nuclear stuff. He's doing fine. He's just like a big, fat, dopey guy in it, Aww. which is the Godzilla I like. That sounds endearing. Sounds now. very American. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I saw um, Eric Romer's last film recently, which is The Romance of Astri and Celadon, which is apparently based on this like 17th century French novel that's like 6,000 pages and has all these stories and books that it's built out of. And it's um, it apparently is very influential. And the movie is very distilled down to just this teenage love story. Apparently, it's, it's like this unfilmable book because it's just so dense. It's like you would have to do like a series or something. Or But um, to see it all distilled down to like this just bare teenage, hey, I love you, I love you, but no, you're over there and with talking to this person and now I'm mad at you. And so that's the whole story of the thing. It was kind of beautiful because it kind of felt like it was his commentary on those kinds of, when you look at it, very adolescent and kind of cheesy uh, romance stories or like Romeo and Juliet or whatever. Like it was him realizing, you know, we, we shouldn't hold this to such a high romantic, um, rational regard. These are just two kids that are kind of dopey and beautiful and don't really know what they're doing. And it's a gorgeous movie. It, it has that thing that I loved about The Happening, where it just loves the color green and loves wind and loves light changing within shots and just loves people talking while it's very windy and green. And, you know, in The Happening, they were trying to draw horror out of that, which was, you know, I kind of respected. I liked that movie a lot more than a lot of people. But it was great because it felt more suited for a romance film to just have people standing in like fields talking and sweeping very linden a little bit but way more like minimalist like way way, me and you could go and make it in prospect park right now 
It sounds like the book is public domain. We actually could. Do you want to? Well, what are you doing later? At cancel the podcast. <laughs> I like Romer so much. He, he's I, wonderful. He's yeah. so good at that. At that sort of two people talking in a beautiful setting. It really, I mean, it really stands out. I mean, I love the um, collection of Seuss or however you pronounce that. Yeah, yeah, I never I, know how to pronounce that one either. I love that one. <laughs> that sort of like, um, it's the the uh, intellectual versus like the instinctual. You know, these two yeah. characters just sort of you know battling it out and in, in speaking. You know, like I love movies like that. Exactly, and and even like his older stuff looks like big budget compared to this one like it doesn't look cheap it just looks like so distilled like as he was making it he realized what he even needs to do a movie like that he realized he needs very little like he 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 was very very proud of it it wasn't received terribly well like people like yeah it's an okay movie i think it's a really important in his sort of filmography because it really does feel like this great realization that he had upon making his last film and i think he announced like oh this is going to be my last film, you know, even if I live to make more, this is going to be it because I feel like I've done it. And I think what he he realized was that as much as he's distilled things before and was known for distilling things before to just two people and talking and talking and simple setting, he could go even further. And he realized he's gone as far as he could, like he's stripped it down as much as he could, which is interesting because it's like a period piece. It takes place back then and it, it feels like you, you get shots of like castles and stuff, but mostly it's just people hanging out in the forest, which is, I don't know if it was actually accurate to what it would have been like, but it feels more accurate because it just feels like you can relate to it more. You know, right. like you've been in the park, you've walked around with people. So there's there's more to grab onto, even though they're wearing like clothing that you wouldn't normally be wearing. It just it feels very human. I think he brought a lot of humanity to this story that is kind of held in this huge regard. It's like when they did all those versions of Pygmalion in the 90s with like uh, where they distilled it to high school and the drama of that. It feels like that, but not updating it, you know, making it modern, but not having to take it into a modern um, surrounding. Those are always those are always wonderful movies. I mean, I love even like when you have a sci-fi that does something like that, where you have those moments, those really human moments. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like we're all we're all people. You know, you look at old photographs, uh, and and it might seem like it's from a you know it is from a different century, but it will it'll seem so alien. But then you know these are the same people that probably looked at it and thought like, oh, I look fat in this photo. Or like, exactly, it's trippy. It's like you you remember that we're all basically the same people. You know, we haven't we we've evolved socially in different areas but we're basically the same evolutionary being as we were back then you know yeah we got rid of all the veils and we brought in the track pants that say bling bling on the ass and and the, yeah the juicy yeah it's on the, the same butt. person man same <laughs> person but that one that's definitely worth checking out i mean obviously his main group of films like the one the, the six that criterion put out together in the set definitely attack that first because you'll see the little bits of it in this one when you then watch this one. But uh, it's it's definitely worth checking out. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Anybody else seen anything new? I've been doing a Bond marathon, like over the course of weeks. Oh yeah, you've been shooting me little messages on Facebook with just random Bond updates. Yeah, of- I've been peppering Facebook and Twitter <laughs> with just stray comments about the Bond movies. I haven't seen most of them since I was a little kid. And it's interesting to watch which ones hold up and which don't. And the degrees to which they do hold up, because like the good ones are way better than I expected them to be. Mm. And the bad ones are unfucking tenable. Which ones are the like the really bad ones? Live and Let Die has easily the best theme song of them all. And actually the best opening credits sequence. It's really cool. There's like skulls on fire, which is good. And then the rest of the movie happens and it's god awful. That's the one that tried to be a black exploitation movie. So it starts, it's Roger Moore is the first Moore one, and he just has no goddamn charisma. Mm. And it starts with him in um, Harlem, and it's a <laughs> terrible black exploitation movie, like vaguely racist, but mostly just pathetic. And then it moves to the South and becomes this weird, terrible exploitation movie. Weird. But the weirdest thing about it is they do like the sheriff from... Um, Smokey and the Bandit, the like Jackie Gleason sheriff, you know, Mm. the sort of like bumbling Bull Connor for kids type sheriff. (laughs) 
but they do it before Smokey and the Bandit or Dukes of Hazards came out. Ah. So I can't figure out where it came from that they're making fun of it, or if it's just like they were so ahead of the curve yeah. that Smokey and the Bandit ripped off James Bond, which <laughs> I can't really believe, but I'm just really sort of thrown by that. So is he your least favorite Bond, Roger? I really don't like Dalton, and I'm pretty much alone in that. But I, I don't even think it's Dalton's fault. I think it's a combination of things. He got he was only in two, and he got the worst ones. He got ones that were really like... It was the height of this period where people weren't sure if James Bond was relevant anymore, but it was before they had figured out any way to like re-engineer him to be relevant. Right. So it was this period where, like, you know, it was like 87, 88. We were all right with the Soviet Union, pretty much just waiting for them to fall. And it's this guy who, um, he looks like he would be the stunt double for Pierce Brosnan. (laughs) It looks like they accidentally made the whole movie with the stunt double. (laughs) Because he, like, kind of looks like Pierce Brosnan from 90 feet away in action. Right. Like, when he's moving, you'd be like, oh, that's Brosnan. (laughs) Which sort of makes sense because when they did his movies, they were already trying to get Pierce Brosnan, but Brosnan couldn't get out of his contract for the TV show he was in. So, like, it's very clear they just got, like, the the made-for-TV version of Brosnan. And he's just, he doesn't have any gravity, so it doesn't work. So who's the best Bond? It's still Connery. It's three, they're all, Craig is unfucking real And Craig's, like, as good as you could do it. And Connery is unreal. And you can watch, like, Connery write the rules for how to be a creep <laughs> he has the best women i think connery gets all the the most stylish women no brosman no? oh those, those are like those are Fomke like model women. is that was, how you even say it i have no i don't care because <laughs> that character was awful that one in golden eye it would have been unacceptable in a connery movie right that like nymphomaniac russian general lady that was brutal but no connery just his physical acting was extraordinary. Just the way he carried himself. And he the difference between him and Moore is Moore was pretty good in the good movies and bad in the bad movies. Connery was good in the bad movies. Mm. And he has this, like, grace to the way he moves. He just doesn't... Like, when you think about even as bad as Live and Let Die is and just the whole premise of James Bond in a black exploitation movie, you could imagine if it were Connery... Like, he could probably do it because he just is genuinely unflappable. With the other ones, it feels like an act. Even with Craig, it feels like an act. But with Connery, it really feels like the the part is curving to meet the man in a good way. Well, Lazenby, for me, visually, he looks like James Bond. He looks like, we were talking about this, he yeah. looks like, what did we say? It was the, the, book, the cover. book cover version of James Bond yeah. before they made any movies. Like exactly. Yeah. He just, there's just something about his face. It's perfect for Bond. I think that went a long way, and I don't think he got a fair shot, but apparently that was, was his own his, fault. Yeah, it was he like his agent down. or yeah. something. His agent talked him out of doing another. So weird. Um, but he he was really good, and that movie, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, is so good. And it's really, it's ahead of its time. The way um, that first fight scene in the hotel is probably the fastest fight scene I have seen in an American movie until maybe like 98 or 99, Mm. until you get to the Matrix era. Because they're just, they're chopping frames out of it. Any of the the wind-ups in the punches, they chop out. So it's just, it's this really relentless, like boom, 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 almost jarringly so and i can't even imagine what it must have been like to see that in 69 oh yeah that must there have was, been yeah there was nothing like it before and there was nothing it's like, like in it back since. to the future where he starts like shredding yeah on yeah it really is because there was nothing like it again like nothing even ripped that off until the late 90s yeah it just hadn't been done again and that one that's the one i think the craig movies are the most indebted to Auto majesty's secret service because aside from the fact that quantum of solace is basically a sequel to it almost there's this just sort of like sadness about all the stuff he's doing. You know, like the the whole idea of, of killing people is fine in the Connery ones because they're vaguely psychotic in a way that works. But with the Craig ones and with, um, with Lazenby, there's sort of, they feel tortured about it in a way that really works in a way that I think is also really modern. Right. I think that's the most modern of all of them. Even and down accidentally to, so, you think? Or maybe it's just, I mean... It was 69, and that was a really important, really revolutionary era 
for movies, for particularly the way violence was done in movies. Right. And I think this is sort of the James Bond reflection of that. Even the music, there's this one um, like synthesizer riff in it that sounds like a John Carpenter score. Mm. It like stops you in your tracks. <laughs> like that could not have been in it originally. That's it interesting, was. man. That one's great. That one's one of my favorites. That one and I think From Russia With Love are the ones that most impressed me. Top tier. Yeah, and Goldfinger, which is a different kind of style. It's very much the cartoony kind of one. With a great song. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But Goldfinger's fun because you can see Spielberg learn how to do a fight scene from Goldfinger. Hmm. There's that scene where Oddjob and James Bond, are they have a fist fight in Fort Knox. And just like the division of power in it, and the the way the space is used in this sort of like circular kind of way is it very Indiana Jonesy or it is almost exactly the fight between Indy and the bald German guy on the wing of the plane. Nice, like down to using the environment in one quick move to kill him at the end. Goldfinger, you you feel like you're watching Spielberg learn how to make a movie. My favorite thing about the Brosnans is I think it's a. Uh, Either die another day or tomorrow, something about dying and days and time and whatever. It's the one where he he bites the girl's shoulder and like the heat of the moment. It's such a weird frame of just like him. He's like, ah. It was such a like a nineties like uh, softcore kind of. That's real Cinemax. (laughs) Is that in the in the in the showers that scene? No, it was like he. uh, You know, I think it was Terry Hatcher. So whichever one is the one with Terry Hatcher. Like, he's just gnawing on her shoulder. <laughs> it's funny, man. Brosnan was great, but he never got a good movie. Even Goldeneye is not nearly as good as I remember it. Goldeneye is the one that everybody loved because it was like our childhood one. Yeah, well, timeless Nintendo 64 game. Yeah, the game. Was, <laughs> well, yeah, that game is unreal. Talk but, about a game being better than the movie. That's the thing about the, example. The thing about the movie, though, is that it's not really... It's like two movies. Well, it's like three movies happen. You have this whole terrible Alan Cummings movie at the beginning... And then you get that tank scene, and that tank scene is still one of the best scenes in the series, mm. where he, he gets in the car chase and he's in the Soviet tank. That scene is a riot. That yeah. scene is still so good. But then that scene ends, and there's like a whole other movie after it. It's, it's almost like a Nolan movie. What's he hit the, the best part in the middle. What's the, uh, what's the bond that was like the unofficial bond one that they got never say never again is that any good or what's the deal with that one i that's the only one that i haven't rewatched because i hated it i hated it so much that i just won't i won't do it i I don't think i ever finished it the first time i saw it wow yeah (laughs) that's the only time connery is bad at any of them that's a shame it was like the 80s he was like it was like right before he did highlander he was old at that point yeah it's almost like the like death wish five kind of thing yeah they dragged him out of his casket to do it again (laughs) it's just not it's not good. It was no Zardoz. No, it was not. It was no Zardoz. <laughs> At least not as good costuming. It was no The Hill. Did you guys ever see The Hill? No, which no. one's that one? The Hill is, if if you're one of those people who think Connery wasn't a good actor, just watch The Hill. It's him and Ossie Davis. Sidney Lumet directed it, and they're in a um, British prison camp, like a war prisoner's camp, but not like prisoners of war, like, like Leavenworth, basically, okay. for soldiers that break soldier law. That one's really good. That's a, I think that's one of the more underrated Lamets. He's got a lot that just haven't really seen the light of day. I've been seeing them sort of trickle out. Like I think there's a, that one Child's Play like got like a random Blu-ray release after not being on DVD or something. They're like these weird deep cuts with yeah. Lamet. Long Day's Journey Into Night is probably one of his best. And mm. It's just, I mean, maybe because it's so long, but hardly anybody even knows about it. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with questions. See you soon. And now, a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. I was watching an old silent film with a friend. I asked him what his favorite part of the movie was. He didn't say anything. So I said, yeah, that's mine too. This has been a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. Visit him at anthonykapfer.com. K-A-P-F-E-R. Chad asks, how do movies get made? Money. Money. Hopes and dreams. Hopes and dreams. Let's all do like one word answers. Uh, Desire. No, it's money. Money. Greed. Capitalism. Lust. Money. You want a movie, you make money. You want to make money, don't make a movie. Damn. 
Diane asks, favorite 90s teen film? Is it Diane Keaton? I think so. <laughs> she would ask that. I never got into these 90s teen movies. That's an, one of those things that I just, I personally am, have failed at. 90s teen movies and movies from the 80s. But I remember watching 10 Things I Hate About You on a bus. <laughs> and I remember thinking it was pretty okay. That's not a bad pick. That's like one of the top tier of that. Yeah, everyone loved it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's cute. It's charming. It has some good acting in it. That's a great movie. That one's really smart. I was always big on uh, Can't Hardly Wait. I like that was one Was that Freddie Prince? No, that was the... Um, that was the one where it's like at a party and like Seth oh, Green yeah, and yeah, 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 Ethan yeah, yeah. Embry and all them. I like that one a lot. There's something worked about that one. Well, this is bullshit for me because my favorite is Bring It On, which is from 2000. Ah. And then my second favorite is Heathers, which is from 86. So I'm abstaining. I just watched Heathers. I, I thought that in a post like Columbine school shooting every other week world, it's a little disturbing. There was a uh, earlier one called Massacre at Central High. That was like the first version of Heather's. It's like semi a remake of it. It's from like 78. And that one, when you go back to that one, you're like, oh my God. Because <laughs> that one is really just like, there's there's like the people planting the bombs in the school and the and you're like, oh God. Mm. That's weird. Yeah. Heather's it's at least really has, a, has that great color coordination. Like Heather's looks cool. Heather's is wonderful. I think it's also just like a flawless screenplay. The writing in Heather's is just so sharp. But it came out in the 80s. Come on, let's give some bones to Diane. I like uh, a um, 90s one. I like My Boyfriend's Back. I've always been a huge proponent of that one. You guys seen that one? The like horror comedy that Bob Balaban directed? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. Because it's, you know, it's, it's very comic booky, and you can't take it seriously. You're just kind of like, oh, this is a silly movie. And then right in the third act, I'll be damned if you don't have like tears coming out of your eyes. There's something about it. It just brings you back. It's like, all right, you know, we went in this silly direction, but now we're going to grab your heart and we're going to play around with it. You know what else I liked like that? Um, Idle Hands. Do you remember Idle Hands? Yeah. I cut school to see Idle Hands and I just was really, I love that movie <laughs> with Jessica Alba. Like that was a young a great, Jessica Alba in it, dressed as an angel. That was a great era for getting real weird with the 90s teen yeah. thing and getting real silly with it. You know, the best of the lot is, though, I know this because I just went back and rewatched the whole thing accidentally. Daria. Daria, the, the movie one? Daria, the show. Well, yeah. Holds up. But they, and did, the like, two, they did two movies, yeah, which yeah, are yeah. basically like long episodes, and they're really good, too. That whole thing holds up so well. The side character voices on that show always really annoyed me. They were just very grating. Couldn't do it. Well, there's only like three side characters, and there's like three people voicing them. It's a very small group. Some of the voices, they just fucking... Blah, it was like nails on a chalkboard for me. It's all very affected. Maybe yeah. you need like the, just the, the scripts for Daria. I always thought her voice was just brilliant. Yeah. It was just perfect. And it's interesting to watch it change over the show. She gets a little, um, like she gets a little more confident as the show goes and she gets a little more like comfortable. So th- as it goes, the voice actress, she'll like, there'll be more um, modulation mm-hmm. in her voice as it goes. I'm pretty sure that's the right word. It just like it becomes a little more dynamic. And it's a little like that uh, the Simpsons thing where, you know, the Tracy Ullman ones are like real scratchy and gross, just like Dario was kind of scratchy and gross on Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, yeah. And then they sort of they figured out, all right, what does this character really need to look like? And then they nailed it. And then they built a whole universe of characters that sort of fit around that, which I really liked. I think it's crazy that the two spinoffs of Beavis and Butthead were Daria and King of the Hill. Mm-hmm. Which are like, you could not pick two shows further from Beavis and Butthead. And they were perfect. Yeah, and all three of them are such great shows. Yeah, they're just perfectly themselves. It's like the greatest example of spinoffs, you know, working and being successful. Yeah, it's like that and like the Mary Tyler Moore spinoffs. Right. That's it. Just these really tight universes. Christian asks, best movies featuring narration? That's an interesting one, actually, because like the, the obvious thing is like, just name great documentaries with narration. But, I think the obvious thing is Goodfellas Apocalypse Now. Right, exactly. But he's probably familiar with those. What are some deep cuts, though? Like, what's some narration deep cuts? I mean, we, we've we treaded Malik way too much in the past. Malik's a great example, but I don't feel like talking about him anymore. Let's take Malik, Film Noir, Apocalypse Now, Goodfellas, and Goodfellas off the table. Yeah. No, and Taxi Driver too. No Scorsese. No, no mentioning of that at okay. this point. 
I, I think um, Another Woman by Woody Allen. That's a great movie. That doesn't get enough credit, that one. Uh, yeah, a totally overrated movie. I'm, I'm, underrated. I'm very... Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> totally, your words. Totally underrated movie. I, I, it definitely has narration. I, ha- I have a, a very strong memory of it yeah, having narration. The, that great chunk with Gene Hackman. Yeah, that, all the, the, yeah. He just nails it. Yeah, that's that's such a great movie. It's like um, it's very it's really graceful that yeah. movie. It's like a strong, complex, like a female lead movie that it, the type of thing like Woody Allen sometimes can really bust out these fantastic female characters, like Blue Jasmine. I thought was really great. Yeah, and then other times they're they're just sort of like in the background. You know, Annie Hall, of course, also being great. Him and Polanski. When Polanski wants to do like a good female character, like he is amazing at it. Like, I think Repulsion is like an amazing feminist film, actually. And then, you know, he's Polanski and there's a whole other thing on the set. But <laughs> Another Woman's a great movie. I would totally recommend that. It's um one woman who's a, a therapist who overhears... Jenna Rollins, which is just like, throw her, her in a movie and I'm there, you know? Yeah. She's just incredible. Yeah, and Mia Farrow. And, and she's overhearing, uh, you know... Yeah, Mia Farrow's a uh, uh, sessions and then starts to kind of become obsessed with this woman and and relates to her. It's really it's really interesting. Yeah, it doesn't get talked about much. It, it kind of get lumped in with like interiors in September as far as like these kind of Woody Allen curiosities after you've already seen a whole bunch of other ones. But it's I I really think it's like upper echelon Woody Allen. Yeah, that's a great example of a good narration one. I think my choice I got to just two words: brief encounter. Brief Encounter. That's all you can say about that movie. Brief, Brief encounter. encounter. She's so fucking good. She has the best face for narration. She's just like <laughs> sitting there staring while narration of, you know, her talking is going over it. And it's that's something that's so hard to do. And I, I don't know how actors can do it when they really nail that, where they just let their face do what it needs to do for narration to be over it. She just she's perfect. It's such a great, great movie. Yeah, there are so many micro changes in her face just as the words go and yeah. not in like an obnoxious way. Like sometimes movies will oversell that. Exactly. They'll like their face will change on every key word. And it, it's just, oh, she's so no, she's good just, in that. It's one of those things where I don't understand how you could even direct that. I don't understand how an actor can even conceive of what the narration is as they're doing it. Is it just this happy accident? Is it just this thing that they tap into? But she nails it with that one. From that to Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia, I mean, there's just, I cannot believe how talented that man was. Yeah, when you, I mean, just next to each other, Lawrence of Arabia, brief encounter. Yeah, it's like they're coming from two different planets of filmmaking, and they're both perfect it's like being like the best drummer in the world best guitarist in the world it's like being all of the beatles yeah <laughs> this is all the beatles this is david lean it's crazy bridge on the river Kwai too oh my god yeah i forgot he did that one yeah he doesn't get enough credit not here I'm, i think bfi does like a retrospective on him every half hour that is true yeah <laughs> but yeah here it's just like oh that guy who did lawrence of arabia Brief Encounter, man. Brief, Brief Encounter. encounter. <laughs> Just watch that movie. So good. I actually haven't seen the movie version. I saw, I've seen plays. I've never seen the play version, so there you go. How about you, John? What's your pick for narration? I don't know if this is an obvious pick. To Kill a Mockingbird. I'd say it's not an obvious pick. I think it's just so good. It's another one. It's a Brief Encounter type movie where the only review you can give of that movie is the title. Just yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird, man. <laughs> that movie and it's just there's so much character jammed into that narration and like it, it's when you look at it on paper it's i feel like it's really easy to mess that up to be overbearing about it or to be like cutesy like every version of huck finn ever filmed basically the narration is just it's too much and yeah. in that one it's just this perfect delicate really just lovely little thing and then um barry linden Mm-hmm. Barry Lyndon, I don't think gets enough credit for the narration because the narration in that movie is hysterical. It's the driest comedy you could imagine, but it is just so funny. Not the first time you watch it. The second time you watch Barry Lyndon and you realize the narrator is making fun of him the entire movie. Mm-hmm. It's just like one of the most quietly creative ways I've seen narration. Oh, wait. F- oh, I got to give one more. Got to give one more. This might be my pick for flat out the best. Blast of Silence. 1961. I know I said no noir, but this is like almost neo-noir because this one breaks every rule. It's second person narration. It's a narrator talking to the main character the whole time. And those lines are just so good. You were born with hate and anger built into you. Just, <laughs> oh, 
I love Blast of Silence. These are all good picks. I want to throw in also The Jerk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. That's, that's a really a good, good pick. Yeah, that is a good pick. All right, guys. I think it's time to uh, close the door on this episode. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for continuing to listen. Thank you, John. Yep. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you. Any uh, final thoughts from any of you? Go watch Dogfight. Dogfight? I love Dogfight. Yeah. River Phoenix. That's a great fucking movie. Nobody ever talks about that movie. That movie's wonderful. Lily Taylor. Amazing yeah. movie. Absolutely. So good. When did you see it? Or? Uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, it's so good. It's stunningly fantastic. I even went in there, you know, reading the what it's about, which is kind of about these, uh, you know, military kids inviting the ugliest woman they can to a party so that they can basically bet on who has the ugliest date and then get paid for it. I was like, great, it's going to be a bullshit movie. Perfect Except movie. that the, the female character, Lily Taylor, is so amazing, oh, yeah. so realistic, so sweet, so sincere, and River Phoenix is fantastic. I think it's his best movie. Oh, yeah. Man, what a, what a film. Such a good script, too, yeah. How about you, John? Last words. Watch Cockfighter. You ever see that one? The Monty Hellman? Yeah. Yeah. Monty Hellman, Warren uh, Oates. Warren Oates is awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. That's a great movie. I love Cockfighter. Man, now I feel pressured to pick a great movie. You know what I saw recently that I didn't bring up is uh, After Hours. That's a really good one, the Scorsese. Oh, yeah, that's a deep cut for him. Yeah, and it's it's wonderful. The the great swirling shots of, like, him just in the uh, very 80s... computer office and stuff it's just in the lighting he's just playing in that one it's funny as hell yeah he's just playing i wish he would play again man he kind of played in the departed but not in the way that i really would want him to play wolf of wall street he did he did i was yet to see that he was having fun in wolf of wall street okay after hours man that's just a fun fucking movie and i just love that it's just this this character with like a unibrow and you know he's just he almost looks like a disheveled Noah Baumbach it's I I love that movie that's a good one anyway thank you all for listening thank you all for subscribing rating commenting if you haven't done so already please do so because it helps us out we will see you next week and we'll see you the following week and we'll see you more weeks so keep listening keep writing questions to us and uh, have a good time everybody Bye-bye. Bye.